This is Frank Gaffney with a word about a truly great American patriot in urgent need. Rich Higgins served in the U.S. Army and as a key civilian Pentagon official and senior strategist on President Trump's National Security Council. After he left the NSC, Rich continued advising Mr. Trump and others about the threats we are facing from enemies, foreign and domestic. He chronicled his experiences over the past 20 years fighting for America First in a terrific memoir entitled The Memo. Now this courageous freedom fighter is gravely ill due to severe complications caused by the Chinese Communist Party virus. He urgently needs help to defray the enormous costs of successive surgeries and a prospective organ transplant. I urge you to join me in contributing to a GoFundMe campaign named Medical Help for Rich Higgins. That's Medical Help for Rich Higgins at GoFundMe.com. God bless you and Rich Higgins. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Tucker Carlson reported last night that a growing number of U.S. military personnel are joining others across the country and refusing to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Such objections may be the beginning in earnest of not only opposition to Joe Biden's increasingly totalitarian vax mandates and the identity papers or passports they inevitably necessitate. Those willing to lose their commissions or jobs rather than take the jab may just be the leading edge of resistance at last to the larger Biden-Harris agenda of fundamentally transforming America. Thus far, the resistance is and must remain peaceful. And if we are lucky, the Navy SEALs, healthcare workers, and other employees and businesses around the country just saying no to Biden's mandates may help spare the rest of us and America the terrifying consequences of the Marxist revolution his team now has well underway. This is Frank Gaffney. History was made on today's date. Stay tuned for an American Minute with Bill Federer. On this day, September 21st, 1924, America's 30th president, Calvin Coolidge, addressed the Holy Name Society in Washington, D.C. He stated, The worst evil that could be inflicted upon the youth would be to leave them at the mercy of their own uncontrolled inclinations. Under such conditions, education would be impossible and all orderly development hopeless. I do not need to picture the result. President Coolidge concluded, It seems perfectly plain that the right to equality, liberty, and property have for their foundation reverence for God. If we could imagine that swept away, our American government could not long survive. This has been an American Minute with Bill Federer. For a free transcript, call American Minute at 1-888-USA-WORD. Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. And I'm very pleased to say a special welcome to our next guest. His name is Todd Benzman. He is, among other things, a senior national security fellow with an absolutely indispensable organization, the Center for Immigration Studies. Brings to that job a wealth of experience as an investigative journalist and as a former intelligence officer with the Department of Public Safety in his native state of Texas. He is the author, most recently, of America's Covert Border War the untold story of the nation's battle to prevent jihadist infiltration. Todd is a great friend of this program, and 
truly a national treasure for the reporting that he has been doing now for years, but most especially in the midst of, uh, well, what we'll be discussing as the Biden effect at the border and what it portends for all of us. Todd Benzman, welcome back to Secure Freedom Radio. It's so good to have you with us. Always great to be here. Thanks, Frank. You are doing the Lord's work in uh, going where no drone is allowed to go these days, it seems, um, under the bridge or in close proximity to it, uh, the international bridge that has become a kind of um, temporary housing space for thousands upon thousands of uh, mostly Haitian uh, illegal immigrants into the United States. Uh, Todd, tell us a little bit about the current state of play with respect to those migrants. Um, why are they here, and uh, why are they here in such numbers in particular? Well, uh, there's a, a simple answer to that and a complicate, more complicated one. The simple answer is that uh, these Haitians want to upgrade their lifestyle and economic prospects, just like uh, anyone. None of these Haitians are fleeing earthquakes or presidential assassination in Haiti. Uh, I think the, most of the country is under this false impression that they're here fleeing terrible stuff in Haiti. Almost every one of these Haitians are, have been living for years in Chile and Brazil in uh, security and relative economic prosperity. Uh, no problem for years in those countries. But when they saw the Biden had opened the border, uh, they all figured, well, uh, it's it's a good time to upgrade from good to maybe great. So that's why they're here. That's the simple reason for why they're here. The more complicated reason for this particular encampment, not talking about the broader border, but this particular encampment so many came at one time because the Biden administration cut a deal with the Mexican government months ago to slow the roll for illegal immigration coming from Guatemala into Mexico. And they asked the Mexicans to keep them in southern Mexico as many as they could through bureaucratic means and the Mexican National Guard. And uh, in doing that, they were requiring that they apply for these different kinds of permissions and travel documents and that sort of thing. And thousands and thousands of Haitians built up behind that wall, behind that dam. And then suddenly on September 12th, uh, Sunday, the government of Mexico said, never mind, you can all leave now. And so all of these Haitians are from the Tapachula area where they had been uh, blocked in this sort of bureaucratic molasses that the Mexicans created. And the Mexicans stabbed Joe Biden in the back and moved their gathering humanitarian crisis from their southern border to the American southern border. All of these people are uh from that area. Now, Todd, let me just ask you, the arrangement that the Biden team fashioned with the Mexican government is not a continuation of the arrangement that the Trump team fashioned with the Mexican government. Uh, tell, tell us about the differences, if you would. Sure. The big difference is that Trump was a, a stick kind of guy. Uh, he told the Mexicans, hey, listen, we need you to stop immigration at your southern border 
And if you don't, we'll do uh, progressive trade tariffs <clears throat> starting small and leading up to 28%. He was very specific about what he was going to do. The Biden administration said, hey, we'll give you money if you just uh, please help us out here. So, you know, when you give somebody money, uh, there's a pretty good chance that they may not follow through until they get more money and more money. And uh, it's not quite uh, the same. And so the Mexican government just said, you know, never mind you. <laughs> uh, we're going to send this massive wave of Haitians to your border. And that's what they did. The Haitians coming here had reasonably good lives where they had been temporarily housed. Um, the question that has arisen is, well, can't we just send them back where they came from? And evidently, um, the Brazilians and the Chileans are not so keen on that idea. Is that right? Well, uh, no. Actually, the administration right now is negotiating with both of those governments right now. And there is a chance, uh, because the, the Biden administration uh, is wants to return these Haitians to Brazil and Chile rather than to Haiti. And that's what I'm being told. And so there are negotiations. And so I won't be surprised at all if they do start to repatriate these camp Haitians here in Del Rio only uh, back to Brazil and Chile. Uh, really? But as, okay. Yeah, there is. That's, there a, that's a change. Yes, no. this is new. This is a new. This is new information. But they have been flying some of them out, and have they been going back to Haiti, or mm. are they uh, going into the interior of the United States, or are some flying and some are being bussed in different directions? So what what's the current disposition of this camp, uh, Todd? Well, my, here's my understanding uh, that I'm I'm being told uh, that there that the plan is is in. Uh, gestation and uh, come, it hasn't quite uh, materialized out yet, but the, where they want to go is really an, a, a very Trumpian. And I like what I'm hearing if they actually do it. Uh, I don't like that uh, they wouldn't apply this to the entire border, only to this camp because it's a political eyesore. But what, what I'm hearing is that they want to send all single adults to Haiti, uh, and then they want to take the family. Predominantly male adults, I take uh, it. No, they're females too. They would move females and male adults to Haiti, a big airlift. And they want to take the family units, and instead of paroling them into the United States like they have with just hundreds of thousands already, uh, they would move those people back to their last country of domicile, which would be Hey, which would be Brazil and Chile once those countries get on board with it. And they may not get on board with it. And then they would send, they would allow uh, Central Americans and the other ones to parole into the into this country. There aren't that many of them. But uh, there are some in that mix. Is, yes, there are some uh, Central Americans, Venezuelans, you know, there's uh, some Africans and um not very many Middle Easterns. I, believe me, I've been looking. <laughs> uh, so I haven't seen too many of them. But um, if they do this, and they already are uh, flying some of the Haitians back to Haiti. And uh, the day before yesterday, I was in the uh, on the Mexican side in the Acuna bus station. 
where I saw patients filling the uh, station and, and waiting in line at the ticket counter for to buy bus tickets back to southern Mexico because the the disincentive, the deterrent effect of repatriation to Haiti is so abhorrent to these people that they are leaving and fleeing this camp and voluntarily. Uh, they don't even want to risk the possibility of being sent back to Haiti. Uh, and what they're telling me is that when they do go back to Mexico, they're going to just wait till this repatriation flight mania passes and then they'll try it again. Uh, Todd, I want to come back to the policy issues here in, in a minute. But first of all, let me just say how much I appreciate you know, the fact that you're on the ground there and on both sides of the border. This is, this is hazardous duty, to say the least. And I, I wanted to explore with you some of the dangers that are associated with it. There are, uh, I presume, as with everybody else who's getting to our southern border, um, cartels in the mix with these folks, that there are, um, you know, drug and uh, human traffickers uh, that are preying upon them as well, and that there are um, serious issues concerning health um, conditions uh, among these populations. Um, walk us through those sorts of issues and whether um, they're particularly evident here or just typical of what's coming across that southern border, if not Haitians or other uh, sort of uh, uh, Central Americans, uh, the, the the vast, you know, um, influx that's coming from all over the world at this point. Okay, yeah, right. So, you know, let me just start by saying that that along the Texas-Mexico border and Arizona and everywhere else, too, the, the, the threat level is not consistent. Uh, it's different in different places. The reason why all of these Haitians and immigrants showed up in Del Rio, of all places, is because the Mexican area, the area of the Mexican side of the border in this region, Piedras Negras and Acuna, are uh, th there are cartels there that are operating, but they are not involved in human smuggling. They don't require the peso in that area, and so it's regarded as cheaper and safer. And the migrants all talk. I never met a migrant that didn't have um, a cell phone with full access to social media, but that's a live wire intelligence dissemination system as well. And the immigrants all know that Del Rio, they, you can cross yourself over and at will and that there is no requirement to pay the peso, the, the tax nor is there retribution or retaliation. In other words, it's pretty trouble-free in this one area, so they all come here. And I'm, I'm a little bit surprised about that, but, uh, but it, it, that they haven't seen a, an opportunity to uh, make a ton of money in Del Rio, but they, ha they haven't. I reported on this first back in March of this year that they were starting to come to Del Rio because word got out that the cartels aren't charging $5,000 to cross. So this explains the concentration uh, for the Haitians in particular. But, but talk yes. us through um, what is taking place elsewhere along the border, uh, Todd, and, and what Border Patrol, for example, are confronting 
um, in terms of these numbers that are coming in, um, uh, you know, accompanied and unaccompanied uh, individuals, uh, children trafficking and all the rest of it? Yeah. So a couple hundred miles to the south in the RGV, what they call the RGV sector, Rio Grande Valley sector, uh, you have uh, extremely vicious uh, cartels. Uh, you know, uh, Gulf Cartel, CDN, uh, all of these uh, uh, organized crime groups, very, very heavily armed and uh, no problem at all, just slaughtering people left and right, causing, um, uh, you know, a terrible human toll on immigrants and charging them, you know, thousands of dollars each to get across to the extent uh, that they uh, have an inventory control system where they uh, put uh, numbered tags on every immigrant's wrist to demark whether they paid and which group was supposed to handle them and all of that. It's very, very well organized, and they're making billions of dollars off of this industry down there. Billions, human you trafficking. say. Be as in boy, yes. billions. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, I mean, if you've got 200,000 a month, uh, trying to cross and most of them do try to cross down there and not Del Rio, uh, then, you know, it adds up, you know, after six months of two of a million and a half people paying $5,000 each, uh, plus all the ones that we don't catch. And there are a lot of those that we don't catch at all. Uh, they're, they're just being fabulously enriched and they, uh, you know, there are single, uh, you know, females that are crossing who are raped and kidnapped and uh, there's extortion rackets and, uh, you know, every kind of, uh, you know, evil that you can think of uh, going on on that side of the border, which, you know, explains why these people came over here to Del Rio. Um, and Todd Benzman, when you talk about this uh, human trafficking business, uh, is, is it accurate to describe what is going on in at least many cases as kind of, kind of indentured servitude that once they get here, uh, some of these people who don't have thousands of dollars are going to wind up spending maybe years uh, paying the cartels back and doing so at horrific personal expense. You know, I uh, have seen a lot of reporting about that and uh, claims about that. I don't personally have any, I've never met an immigrant who was describing that. It does seem like, uh, you know, they have, they, they have to pay in advance. They have to, I mean, cartels want cash. They're they don't not taking have credit. Hmm. Yeah. They don't take credit, uh, that I know of, but I, I mean, I have heard of that, but I, I really can't speak to, to the extortion part of it. Uh, you know, the, the, debt servitude part of it but but there certainly are many many examples of of people being essentially sold into sex trafficking operations uh oh beyond, of them well, beyond children question. right yeah. oh yeah beyond question and a lot of that happens on the mexican side uh where uh you know young women disappear and uh you know there's it's it's often kidnap kidnapping based and um the, the extortion rackets also, uh, you know, if you if you don't pay the cartels up front, you know, they'll hold you and contact the families and say, hey, you're, you know, we'll start sending fingers back if you don't find the money kind of thing. Todd, this is a, a human tragedy on, on such a vast scale. Let, let me come now to the policies that have 
put this in motion. Um, we talked a little bit about you know the differences between the Trump and the Biden approach, uh, specifically to Mexico. But but just talk more generally about what were the circumstances when Biden took office and how have they been transformed, one might say, fundamentally transformed by the Biden team in just the space of the past, uh, whatever it is now, nine months? Well, the story of these Haitians really is a, a very illustrative of what, of you know, for the answer to that question. Uh, you know, I've interviewed just dozens and dozens and dozens uh, over the last year, Haitians. They're very uh, common. And, you know, the reason why a lot of them have been living for years in Brazil and Chile is because they realized that the under the Trump administration that they would not be able to get over the border uh, with a high degree of confidence and a high percentage of a chance to get over the border that that under the weight in Mexico policy, they would be returned to apply for asylum inside Mexico. Nobody wants to do that. They want to apply inside the United States because nobody's eligible for asylum. They're eligible to apply, but they'll never get it, but they'll be illegal inside the country. So the wait in Mexico uh, was they didn't even want to bother. They just stayed in Chile and Brazil. And then the pandemic, Title 42, and uh, there, Trump was doing repatriation flights too to Haiti and to Guatemala. Uh, there was the first, um, if they wanted to apply for asylum and they passed through Guatemala, we would send them to Guatemala and say, you have to apply in Guatemala because it's a, we've deemed it a safe. So the bottom line is that there was this deterrence. Why is it a deterrent? Because all of these people have to pay thousands of dollars in smuggling fees to get here. And if your chances of actually succeeding and getting a payoff on your investment is, you know, 10%, you're not going to do it. If it's 90%, you're going to do it. And so under Biden, Biden policies increase that to 90%, uh, maybe even 100% if you were a family, part of a family. They were letting family units in. And so they paid the money, they invested and were rewarded. Uh, on that investment. And so the policies that Biden put in place or, or did was he reversed all of the Trump deterrence, got rid of them, eschewed them, criticized them as uh, cruel, uh, and decided that the only non-cruel kind of uh, policy to have would be to let people in. That's, that's their idea of non, of, of, of kindliness. And so uh, they ended deportation inside the interior. And that was just wonderful because even if you got let in and you didn't get your asylum, you were forever inside the country, you know, because there's nobody's going to deport you. And it was just a, a perfect storm for immigrants all over the all over the world that if you could get in, you would never be deported. You would be able to apply for asylum and lose and still not get deported. And that's what's been happening. That's why we have a million and a half just in the one year. Uh, in another month, we're probably going to be in numbers that are the highest in American history. Truly an invasion, I think it's fair to say. And Todd, one of the things that we value so much of 
about your work at the Center for Immigration Studies is that you do bring a national security background to all of this. Uh, you've been in the uh, law enforcement business uh, for a time. You've seen up close and personal, as they say, both in that role and in your current one at the Center for Immigration Studies, the the nature of the people who are coming across. And while I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of them may meet the profile that you just described of people seeking to better themselves economically and perhaps the safety of their families and so on, there are some in that mix who are coming here who wish us ill. And uh, obviously we've been talking about this with you in recent days about you know the lack of vetting of Afghans that are being brought in here in vast numbers, but um, that's true in spades with this much, much larger influx of people, uh, many of whom we don't know their identity for sure and the like. Just give us quickly, if you would, Todd, a, a professional assessment of the extent to which all of this conduces to real threats to the homeland and even national security of the United States. Right. Well, uh, as we've talked about before, there are uh, immigrants, uh, people moving, traveling from the Middle East, from countries like Syria and Pakistan and, frankly, Afghanistan. Not a lot, but uh, there are routes that lead directly from countries that are riven with, institutionally riven, uh, meaning, you know, schools and government and, uh, you know, uh, neighborhood mosques uh, in uh, in the countryside uh, with it, Islamist uh, extremist ideology. And uh, those are people who are showing up at the border as well, right alongside Haitians and uh, Angolans and everybody else. I mean, I've met them. I've interviewed them uh, a couple months ago. I was in Costa Rica on that trail and met immigrants from the Islamic Republic of Mauritania and Senegal. And I've met Pakistanis on the, on the route and Iraqis and Iranians personally met them and interviewed them, Bangladeshis. And that's obviously, I, I mean, I don't think I, it's, anybody should need convincing, but you know, people apparently do. That's obviously a national security problem when you don't know who they are. They show up without identification. I was just listening to Lindsey Graham a few minutes ago before you called on uh, Fox News talking about this very thing, that when the border is under this kind of collapsing stress, which it is collapsing, uh, there are border patrol agents uh, from all up and down the line here in Del Rio working on guard duty and processing, and they are not on the line. Yeah, the line is empty. Yeah. The line is empty. I'm telling you, there is nobody out there right now. Nobody is guarding the line. And you can walk walk, walk across and right, get right into the country. Uh, and the number of getaways, therefore, are, uh, are presumably substantially higher as a result as well. Todd Bensman, we have to leave it at this for the moment. Thank you for this comprehensive report, as well as the incredible on-the-ground 
you know, coverage of this story that you are providing all of us. Um, it really is a, a huge national service, and uh, it's deeply appreciated, I know, by our listeners and I'm sure by those on the various other programs that you're participating in. So come back to us with updates, if you would, very soon. Yeah, I thank the rest you. Of you. I appreciate will, it. We'll come back to us again tomorrow, same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Afney. Thanks for listening. been listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. This is Frank Gaffney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Tucker Carlson reported last night that a growing number of U.S. military personnel are joining others across the country and refusing to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Such objections may be the beginning in earnest of not only opposition to Joe Biden's increasingly totalitarian vax mandates and the identity papers or passports they inevitably necessitate. Those willing to lose their commissions or jobs rather than take the jab may just be the leading edge of resistance at last to the larger Biden-Harris agenda of fundamentally transforming America. Thus far, the resistance is and must remain peaceful. And if we are lucky, the Navy SEALs, healthcare workers, and other employees and businesses around the country just saying no to Biden's mandates may help spare the rest of us and America the terrifying consequences of the Marxist revolution his team now has well underway. This is Frank Gaffney. History was made on today's date. Stay tuned for an American Minute with Bill Federer. On this day, September 21st, 1924, America's 30th president, Calvin Coolidge, addressed the Holy Name Society in Washington, D.C. He stated, The worst evil that could be inflicted upon the youth would be to leave them at the mercy of their own uncontrolled inclinations. Under such conditions, education would be impossible and all orderly development hopeless. I do not need to picture the result. President Coolidge concluded, It seems perfectly plain that the right to equality, liberty, and property have for their foundation reverence for God. If we could imagine that swept away, our American government could not long survive. This has been an American Minute with Bill Federer. For a free transcript, call American Minute at 1-888-USA-WORD.